Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. My guest on this episode is the magazine editor and writer, Penny Martin. Born in Glasgow, she studied her art history at St Andrews University and then moved to London to pursue a career in art curation and academia. However, in 2001, the photographer Nick Knight approached her to become the editor of his groundbreaking new fashion website, Show Studio, and she never looked back. In 2009, she launched The Gentlewoman, the biannual women's magazine, which she continues to edit and which has built a devoted fan base for its witty, idiosyncratic tone of voice, beautiful fashion spreads, and pioneering covers, featuring the likes of Cindy Sherman, Beyonce, and Phoebe Philo. I sat down with Penny to hear about some of the things that are important to her. Hi, Penny Martin. Hi, thanks for coming over. It's a pleasure to be here at your home in West London. <laughs> Not at Carlos Place as usual. No, but uh, similarly Victorian property. Mm. Much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> and you have an array of things laid out in front of us. Yeah, to talk about. reading the archive. So even though we're at your house, these objects are, are destined for the cabinet at Five Carlos Place in the attic. Um... Which one did you want to speak about first? Perhaps the first one that comes to mind because it's most topical, because it's always quite topical, is I'm a prodigious sender of postcards. And last week I was on a press trip in Rome where I was helping all the (laughs) British press with their postcards with Italian stamps because I carry a little wallet of uh, stamps. uh, So we have this wallet here. With stamps of every variety. I can see some from Italy and South Africa and there's probably a couple of Australian ones left over various denominations of British stamps etc because I send them all the time and I was trying to think why I have this massive stack and it's a combination of reasons. Um, Between the age of 13 and 21 my family home didn't have a phone which meant that when I left home uh, to go to university... So St Andrews? Yes, yeah. uh, to go to Glasgow, <laughs> the three-hour <laughs> distance, but it felt vast at the time, of course. Um, I'd had no way of contacting my parents um, <laughs> in an emergency, which now seems unimaginable. And uh, for somebody so chatty and so kind of <laughs> um, wedded to the kind of uh, culture of their family, and I loved St Andrews as well, I must have really missed home, so I sent millions of postcards. Meanwhile, I was studying art history at university where I was traveling a lot and needing aid memoir. It's hard to remember without the powers of the internet or you know PowerPoint or files of photography that we don't have a way of remembering images, um, you know, just calling up the Mona Lisa, if you like. So I needed to kind of collect aid memoir and I have piles and piles of postcards that I decided not that long ago that I was going to get rid of. They became a kind of archive of all the things that I'd studied. So they went from the Renaissance all the way up to, you know, 20th century photography by the time I became a museum curator later on. 
Um, so at the moment, I'm trying to wade through these piles of postcards and get rid of them. But like, people know me for my postcards. And I think I'm probably the only person left sending them. Um, my accountant recently left, or rather... What, you sent one to your accountant? Well, well <laughs> I hadn't thought that I did, but... Um, they recently uh, sent me a note to say I'm moving on from the accountant's firm and I'll always remember you and your postcards. <laughs> I was trying to think. And of course, I must just use them like compliment slips um, to sort of attach to accounts and things like that, as well as kind of bombard people with them. But yeah, I probably, if I travel to a, a city, I probably buy between 10 and 20 and I send them all. So I have um, very good relations with my family, my my extended family, which I think a lot of women do. It's not generally not one's brothers that are kind of counted on to be in touch with an elderly aunt, and it's always the sister, isn't it? So I think uh, you know all my family on the west coast of Scotland in Arran, etc., have must have these piles of postcards if indeed they keep them. But recently, a beloved uncle died, and his granddaughter sent me a note saying, "I think you must be in need of a." pen pal having obviously witnessed the torrent of cards coming in the door said and i've got an idea who that could be me <laughs> so i've struck up new relationships so it seems that it's kind of a, an ongoing cycle oh um well the, the wallet with the with the it's from um, smithson wallet so it was you automatically buy stamps wherever you go because that in itself feels quite esoteric <laughs> Yeah, that's the word. Yeah, I was on a press trip to Naples and I can remember the poor driver having to go for miles to find a post office that was open. We got postcards with stamps attached and then these stamps as well, which are really nice. I haven't had a chance to use that one yet. Um, but yeah, no, this um, card wallet was given to me. They no longer make them, but by a former intern. I must say I'm quite proud of the kind of intern scheme that I used to run quite hands-on. It's now my assistant that does it. The intern scheme at the gentleman length of magazine. It stretches back to show studio, actually. So around about 2001, when I really counted on intern help, um, I had come from the civil service, of course. I've been a museum curator. And they're very big on development and setting uh, agendas and programmes of work and then doing appraisals. I think I'm the most bureaucratic person in the whole of fashion. <laughs> um, but... Uh, they did very well at university. I had a string where they all had double firsts, etc. You know, I really was into training them. And, and a very dear friend, Laura Bradley, who then became and finished up as a creative director at um, the Dazed and Confused, another empire. This is from her. So this must be, oh God, when would she have left? 2008? So it's a good, yeah, t 10 or 12 years old I think and there's a little pouch in the front for stamps so it's actually a card wallet for business cards but um yeah it's looking you a bit dog-eared now isn't it yeah. yeah no I'm very proud of those people that have gone on to brilliant jobs I'm, I don't mind what bragging makes, about them what do you look for in your amazing interns generally that they've been a waitress or waiter <laughs> um because they're not above anything and they don't mind picking up the thing that fell on the floor and they understand that that's what's required for the team to really push through and then they get a chance to see you know, everything, because they were, especially in the days at Show Studio, they were at my elbow and they could see onto my computer and they knew my vital statistics and just every terrible thing about me, really. It's a very strange relationship, I think, in turning, and especially for women, I think, of my age. What am I? I'm 40. I'll be 47 this year. And you're pretty much, in a way, training somebody to be you. It's a real kind of potentially all about Eve situation. Is it where... training them to be you, though, or is it recognising that... 
they can do something different to you. Our team isn't big enough for me to do a kind of program where they have a great deal of kind of autonomy from me. No, they're they're picking up everything. You know, my assistant, like our senior editor, pretty much does everything that I can't do in a working day. And then probably the intern then gets it from them. But in those days, it was just everything that I couldn't do, they did. So, and probably because I came from the civil service, I had a very particular way of doing things. Um, you know, down to the pen, the number of rings on the phone, the number of, you know, I used to be a curator where you had to answer written communication within 28 days, which seems a long time now. But, you know, you had to pick up with a, a phone within six rings. And I don't think I'm quite that Miss Jean Brodie-ish now, maybe. Um, but I think I gather in the industry there's a Penny Martin way, but there's probably a Jefferson Hack way and a Katie Grand way, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good company to keep. Um, <laughs> well, I don't mean to compare myself with them. <laughs> what else are we going to talk about? So if you were to look around my office, um, which is in Fitzrovia, um, you would also see uh, <laughs> a bottle of Speyside malt uh, and the right glass, which I've decided is um, an Edinburgh crystal. They don't make them anymore, but they've got little thistles on them. So I suppose it must be a piece of Scotland in my office for kind of trying times. I, you know, I've, I've struggled with whether this is a very good idea because it needs to, my, my shelves are open, but I can sometimes see an, in, you know, a business contact or an interviewer eyes roving around to seeing whiskey on the shelves and thinking that there may be a bit of a problem lurking and and, and indeed at times I've noticed that the um, level of the whiskey can go down without my help in the office. At one point I thought I'd measure it and during production you know the pencil mark uh, was quite far from the actual level of the whiskey but anyway it can be a good stiffener at kind of seven o'clock if you've got a night shift to so pull after like a day. So it's not like a kind of madman type situation where people come in you automatically offer them a drink at 11 o'clock in the morning back at the back in the digital days we would certainly be cracking open a drink at five if we had to pull an all-nighter if we're doing a kind of what 24 what's hours the digital shift. days like you mean when you were at show studio yeah yeah um we would do you know if we were working with nick um on a shoot you know that you could finish any time um uh and just we were really it was new and there was we didn't really have any equivalents that were one of the first fashion websites and it was a kind of open playing field and we were absolutely obsessed and kind of in love with each other it was a really brilliant studio environment very unstructured in comparison with what I'd experienced obviously in the museums which was a learning curve so Nick, Nick Knight who founded show studio he approached you yeah to take on this role didn't he he did um I'd um curated a show a small show um, in the Victoria and Albert Museum about the production of a single issue of British Vogue magazine, which was tied in with the PhD research that I was doing at the time. And I think he'd heard about it. I don't know if he saw it. It was certainly on at the time. It was a kind of companion show to Imperfect Beauty, which was Charlotte Cotton's show um, uh, about the making of fashion photography. And Nick was in that, so possibly he saw it but anyway he was looking for somebody to replace Alice Rosthorne who had started when Show Studio had been announced and commissioned you know the first year of text though I think she <laughs> cleverly avoided being in that studio um, and then uh, somebody recommended me on the team Christabel Stewart who was the art editor and I'd been at university with her in Glasgow um, <clears throat> yeah, and I had an interview with Nick on the set of a Christian Dior shoot that he was doing with John Galliano. And I quite 
literally sat in the green room waiting to be interviewed with a snake charmer on one side and the strong man on the other. And they said, are you a model love? And I was like, that, is this what it's going to be like? Of course not. <laughs> and so you were at show studio for about eight years. Eight I years think. And then Seven you were approached months. again um, by two people to launch another new project, which was the Gentlewoman magazine. Yes. Get, I can't remember the title. Gert Yonkers and Jop van Bennekom, and then annoyed them royally by not accepting. (laughs) I, we circled each other like pigeons for months. And then I went over to Amsterdam and we had a day long conversation. Mm -hmm. And then I heard nothing because I didn't, they were in production on Fantastic Man and sort of deciding what they were going to do. I suppose I didn't know the cycle in those days. Mm -hmm. And at that time I'd been approached or I'd applied to um, become professor of fashion imagery at London University of the Arts, University of the Arts London, that's what it's called, but it was London College of Fashion. Um, And when I didn't hear from Gert and Jop, I accepted the job at the college and Jop was furious. However, stuck with me and kept (laughs) seeing me for lunch and coffee, tantalizing me with these kind of little gobbits of information about this project, about this women's magazine. And I think he knew exactly how to press my buttons because around about the March, which halfway into the year, he phoned me up and said, what do you think of X person? No, who will shall remain nameless. To be the editor instead of you. And I was absolutely livid. <laughs> and I was like, that's my job. Uh, and then <laughs> it was destiny. I was just like, I've got to, I can't. So I had many commitments. I had two exhibitions that I had uh, I mean, I was idiotically threw myself into a work intensity of work that I could never have achieved on my own because I was so used to working with seven other people who were brilliant, brilliant coders, brilliant uh, interactive designers, fantastic art directors. Meanwhile, I'm commissioning work still at the same rate with myself and nobody else. So it was a very intense year, horrendous actually, through my own fault really, about n- not realising how to dial it down. And um, then I finally asked Yop to come for lunch and my first words were, still interested in that job? And he still had his crab and his fork in his mouth and he said, yeah. <laughs> and it was like the rapture. I was oh. like, oh my God, thank God, thank God. Yeah. And it was, I ran into that place pretty much, not knowing what to expect and completely ill-equipped to do the job, quite honestly. Um, and they already published um, Fantastic Man and Butt magazine. Correct. So you- this was their first, this was, they project. wanted the women's equivalent. So that was like 10 years now. Yes, they, I started the in issue. sort of September, October mm. 2009, and we launched the issue in March 2010. Mm. Did quick. You, yeah, yeah, really quick. Um, did you, when you started it then, did you ever imagine that it would turn out to be something that it's turned out to be now? No. No, it's not that I didn't think it would work. I couldn't let myself think beyond the terrifying issue I had ahead. I knew I had no idea how to do it. And I felt scorched by my experience at the college, you know, just trying to do two exhibitions. I think I wrote 13 articles that year, just an insane... So I just knew that I didn't want to feel that kind of level of anxiety again. But of course, I was hugely exposed, really. But I couldn't really stay away from the industry. It wasn't really the subject of fashion itself. It was the 
momentum and the short-term delivery that I'd become addicted to. Um, and going back to academia and museums and that whole culture where you're working on a project that could be four or seven years to get it done, it felt like being buried alive. I couldn't, I, you know, I've said before, it was like being a, a egg that had been boiled. I couldn't go back to the previous set of desires or state that I was in before I'd experienced fashion and now I know I would need to be <laughs> satisfied continually by short-term outcomes as well as a longer-term outcome so I mean that's my problem to solve <laughs> but um uh, I, I you know I've become I've become all right at it let's go back to the cabinet so <clears throat> we have uh your postcards and stamps um and another thing and the whiskey with its correct glass exactly um one thing else that you would find in my studio as well as in my bed every night though i don't put it there is a hot water bottle um i think this would be my desert island disc luxury object <laughs> because i have it with me all day I'm, i just think i've got a very low blood temperature or You're, you feel cold well often. yeah i think i've got low blood pressure mm. I, I think i do and my extremities my nose and my fingertips and my toes are often cold um and in order to just be in a comfortable place in order to absent myself and really get into an edit or if i'm writing i kind of just need comfort blanket warm i just need warmth i'm a typically scottish person that would sit close enough for the fire to their turn their legs to kind of the color of corned beef um so uh yeah i've many many um hot water bottles the office has stacks of them we all use them feet uh knees etc um and i found this really good yellow one um in labor and weight recently but i've had black ones up in my place in scotland and there's loads of pink ones all over the office but it's quite a nice thing that i manage to forget every night that will be there but my husband secretly puts one in the bed Aww. every night before i get up there <laughs> it's a kind of peculiar ritual but um, a lovely gesture it is yeah. he doesn't need a hot water bottle presumably no no he quite likes the coolness of fresh sheets whereas i like the kind of warmth so we're like jack spratt and mrs spratt of the kind of uh hot water bottle Do you, um, world what's the perfect way what's the perfect hot water bottle making technique is it uh, of course you no 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 I, I probably put my water in far too hot mm. everybody tells me that I shouldn't put Isn't that... straight boiling but I've never had one burst on me I think the important thing is to make sure that you create a vacuum you press every other bit of air out so that stops it cooling quickly and I don't really like a hot water bottle cover I find them kind of grim and a bit gross uh, so actually I like the slightly blistering heat of a freshly made one I also feel like a hot water bottle hasn't, the technology hasn't advanced. I mean, it is. Well, you it say It can't that. be bettered, or can it? We made the first three issues of The Gentlewoman in Amsterdam, and they don't have them. They have no. this metal flask that is inside a terry toweling sock with a little ribbon on the end. As far as I can tell, that was all I could find. And I definitely needed one. And my friends in LA and New York always ask me to send them out. I don't know what they do with them because I've had mine forever. But um, my best friend lives in LA and I, I'm always sending her hot water bottles. So she, who knows what she does with them. <laughs> Maybe she gives them to her friend. She's very generous. Um, um, from there, uh, we would see... Um, ah, right. Concealer. Now, when I was a teenager... I uh, had terrible skin, or at least 
I thought I had terrible skin. Now when I see sort of 13 or 14 year old girls, I actually think it looks quite nice to see the transitioning of their skin. And I've seen pictures of lovely looking girls in ID looking great with just one or two, but I was paranoid about it. I hated it, wore far too much foundation at one point. Finally found uh, Laura Mercier's concealer and I've probably used more than I need to because I've got the dysmorphia of still but thinking still my skin it. is as bad. Oh God, yeah. Um, which mixes up a brilliant um, tone. Although if I was working for Laura Mercier and maybe somebody's listening that does, uh, They've got to change their packaging from that 1991 sparkly brown. Awful. Um, however, it is a fantastic project, a product. And I think it's just about um, denuding my skin from a red tone, which became synonymous with having congested bad skin, um, which has actually had ripple effect on probably the rest of the way I dress. I'm paranoid about having a, a warm colour near my face. We'd never wear a red jumper or a yellow jumper because I just immediately think it's going to amplify any redness in my skin. So you may think that subconsciously my complete sea of blue, which is the wardrobe, my school uniform, um, is a counterbalance to this idea that my skin's bright red. <laughs> like Paul Riley's character in Still Game or something. But, um, you know, it's, it, uh, you know, it's in you my wear, mind, I know. Did you wear lots of other makeup? To, at the same time, or was it just this? No, no, I probably wore, you know, you lined eyes. Kind of blonde yeah. women with unlined eyes can be a bit frightening in the morning. <laughs> um, but you know, I hadn't even figured out the whole eyebrow thing, which is obviously the uh, beauty concern du jour, mm. that and the awful contouring. No, it was just about be, being able to have something that I didn't feel self conscious about. God, isn't that awful thing? You always look back at how you looked at that time and think you looked I know. incredible. Mm. I know. Teenage girls, listen, you know, it's just. Yeah. Stop um, using Clearasil. No wonder your skin's a mess. Tries it out, right? Um, the women that you feature in your magazine are often, they, they have imperfections or things that might not necessarily, you might, might not necessarily usually come across in a magazine. Is Best that example of that probably is Lu uh, Lucia Pica, who is the creative director of Beauty and Colour at Chanel who we did a portrait series where we made a virtue and exposed perhaps more than most people had seen the um, port wine um, stain um, uh, birthmark um, that she has um, in her hands and across her body and mm. across her torso. And of course she puts her love affair and obsession with the colour red down to her own high colouring. And it was fantastic to be able to have mm. such beautiful radical portraits of her um so yeah of course we would try and make a virtue of that when i mean i'd seen pictures of her that had been re had been retouched out you know mm. outrageous mm. Mm. when did you publish that image i think that was in the sophia coppola issue mm. would it have been so that would be to th the, th the 15th issue there we go, I love from... how you know the numbers as opposed to I would have thought about it in seasons but I was just the reason I asked that was because I was thinking about how we you know in, we're in this moment now of um hyper awareness around diversity in yeah. magazines and that feels like it might have been just before that moment but the gentleman feels incredibly prescient in that way that it's anticipated all of that anyway I think that the agenda amongst the people that make the gentlewoman but also the house um uh certainly a very celebratory magazine like but um 
is to think about diversity in a number of ways. I mean, it's not purely a, a thing about heritage or race. It's clearly about size and about age and about economic background and different kinds of education. That people are different for lots of different reasons. And, you know, it's my job to make sure that that feels like natural rather than we're trying to make some kind of topical point about it because that very quickly tips over into a kind of marketing scheme yeah like tokenism and, yeah and we're yeah. trying very hard not to make people seem like products that we're selling through the magazine um and that requires a lot of journalistic development to find formats that you're not you don't feel like you're you know plonking somebody on half page of a magazine and selling them like a shop opening or a kind of new product launch mm. What else are we putting into the cabinet? I've written a diary since I was 11. The, f- it's, the actual text has occupied numerous uh, types of volumes. In the early days, uh, I probably had um, little girls' diaries that had a um, couple of inches per day and it said things like, I went to the shops with Moira. I now learn when I read them back. Because that is something that I do. Um, when I've finished an entry, quite often I think, oh, I wonder what I was doing five years ago or what do I was doing 20 years ago and I can generally find the subject and I quite enjoy browsing and just... Did they start, did you start with their diary or did you just go... No, no, I wonder, it's a very good question because who are you addressing through it? The answer to that is I don't, it will just start straight into text. But you're writing to a kind of weird audience and there was a time when I stopped writing the diary, I didn't read it, write it, I think between 2000 and one in 2004 and I for various reasons just I didn't feel like committing what you know I had a horrible time and I I didn't want to write that entry and it took me a long time to work up the uh, courage to do it. Was that Um, the period when your brother? Yeah after my brother had died Um, but there was somebody in our office at Show Studio a guy called Paul Brutti who I'd been talking to about the fact that I was writing journalism but there was something else that I felt like I wanted to write, but I wasn't sure what it was. And he said, it sounds like you're not, you've, you've had an internal voice and it's gone somewhere and, and you, you now don't have a place to lodge it. So he went along to a, a bind, the Wyvern Bindery on Old Street, um, which is a lovely old bindery. And he bought me this book and it was one of the kindest things because it started again and it was quite... You know, I, th- I think the first lines in it are, I hesitate to write this. You know, it's obviously difficult to try and find out what was going to kind of come out. But it's a very strange tone one has in one's diary because unless you're writing it for somebody to read it, in which case, you know, like if you read, I guess, Alan Bennett's diaries, diaries for the London Review of Books or even Tina Brown's Vanity Di- uh, Fair diaries where, you know, t- Tina sees everything coming. It's hard to tell if there's a sense of she knows that, that, that the diary will occupy a published outcome or, or will, will fulfil a published outcome or if there's any revisionism in the edit. I mean, who could resist? But um, uh, there's a kind of strange tone where you're playing to your own gallery and I actually think it's a bit like having drunk a glass of wine and you have that kind of hello feeling where you feel like you multiply and you're in your own company a little bit and that there's like four of you instead of one of you and I think that kind of writing where you're a little bit more entertaining for your own benefit um it's just something that needs to go somewhere i can't explain it any other way so how do you when you write them now is there how often do you write it 
it really depends. Sometimes during an intense period where presumably, you know, they must fulfill the same function as going to a therapist. You yeah. know, if you try to figure it's something like out, you might thing. do it four times in a week. But, you know, quite often a couple of weeks can pass and nothing's in there. Maybe months. And then there's a torrent of, and another thing, you know. And, <laughs> so, if, and do you see them, do you write them as if you're thinking of some outcome for them? No. No. And that is a very good question. I mean, as somebody that's had to clear out somebody else's room after they die, what happens to these things? And I did think that uh, must have been one of the reasons I stopped writing in 2001. It's like, I find them valuable. I like that they exist, but they're not for anything when I've gone. And I certainly don't, you know, I haven't lived some important life where I'm archives going to want them. Mm. I don't, you know, I they certainly might. wouldn't. I mean, you have an... A, Tina, similar to Tina Brown living in, the, in this world, it's quite. It could be a good snapshot of a media fashion. Well, if I'd written them like that, maybe time. they would have done. But I don't. I don't think that that's what they're for. And I think if they have a therapeutic function, quite often you're exaggerating something to get it worked out. So I now know that you don't mean anything enough that you would want somebody else to read them in the negative. It would have been terrible to go through. I don't know, found something in my brother's belongings that said, oh, Penny is driving me mental. Because, you know, that's a perfectly natural thing for him to think, but nobody wants to read that after the event. Hmm. So I, I am aware they've got a very peculiar power, but I'm not really sure what to do with them. <laughs> hmm. I love reading diaries. Do you um, like to read your own? Yeah, of course I do, hmm. because they're so, you know, ridiculous. Do you recognise yourself in them? Of course not. You know, you're 14 and it's like, right, I'm going to this party and I'm going to wear, and he said, and I said, yeah. and then she said, and I, you know, I mean, it's just... I'm going to buy some more makeup, yeah. Uh, My God, yeah, we're, I can't afford concealer yeah. this week. <laughs> well, no, it's not quite like that. But um, yeah, no, of course, and there's little sad things in it where you think, oh God, did I think that? You know, in the way that you hope you've worked those things out, it's quite sad to be back to sort of nose to nose with your 18-year-old self that's you know, upset or disappointed or fearful of something that you think, God, I thought I was having a great time then. You know, mm. so they, they, they are a peculiar thing. Mm. What would you like, <laughs> if someone found your diaries after you passed away, what would you want them to do with them? Well, I think I probably should just get them burnt. And in <laughs> fact, maybe I'll burn them before that happens. Because for all those reasons, that I don't, there's not one person I think I would want to read them. So if we have them in the cabinet at Carlos Place, <laughs> we're going to have to keep them. We're going to have to either keep them, the books closed. It's a closed cabinet, so people wouldn't be able to browse them anyway. By I the way, I think you're getting but... the one that says Myra and I went yeah. to the shops. <laughs> okay, and not oh my god, I've seen this man Barry Kelly. <laughs> Is Barry Kelly your husband? Yes. When did you meet him? I was twenty-one. I'd heard about him before I saw him. Really? His yeah. reputation preceded him? Yeah. yeah. I used to hang about with a guy who was sort of dating a guy who truly was in love with this group of guys. And I just was fascinated by the idea of a person that somebody called by their surname, like Robin Hood or Peter Pan. <laughs> and I just knew he had this energy because all these guys would talk about Barry Kelly, Barry Kelly. And I was like, wow, I like the idea of this Barry Kelly. And the poor guy, yeah. Uh, Probably wished he'd never mentioned Did his name. Did you write about this in your diary? <laughs> <laughs> you got a good yeah, because my little brother and I used to go and see where we could find him. We'd go to the Glasgow Art School um, uh, disco and like 
maybe Barry Kelly will be there and then one day he won't. Oh, wow. So he really was like mm. the a legend. Mm, yeah. Does he know about this now? <laughs> you talk about <laughs> when he hears this, he's going to know. <laughs> oh, he's heard it. Um, no, I mean, I just uh, couldn't believe that a man looked like that. Um, he was... <laughs> he was a he great like? customer of the main um, red, men's ready-to-wear shop at the time. Actually, the Alistair Mackey, the stylist Alistair Mackey used to work in, called Ichini San in Glasgow. And he, he was the only man that I'd ever met that had 36 coats. You know, I mean, he was like, <laughs> he was a former bingo caller um, <laughs> in his uh, teens. And, you know, when I met him, he was wearing a Catherine Hamnet navy blue jean, velvet jean jacket and jeans and brown duffer zip up on either side of each boot ankle boots and he had a lee cream jean jacket over the top of it and he had this feathered haircut it was a bit like kind of rod stewart's and he had a 28 inch waist and a 34 leg and he just looked like a kind of alien man and i was just like oh my god this guy barry kelly <laughs> and I, at that point i'd said oh paul do you want to dance and he's like that no and i heard this voice say i'll dance with you and it was barry kelly <laughs> wow that's a great story <laughs> you'll kill me <laughs> <laughs> and 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 you've been together ever since have you yeah. or was there a yeah, yeah it, um is that when was that 1994 25 years wow how nice <laughs> are there any other objects we're putting into the into your cabinet at Carlos Place on my desk in the office is a sort of collection of blocks which are actually mementos from fashion shows but they're really useful um, the Miu Miu seat invitation is twinned with a little block that you find on your seat when you get there and they're just the perfect paperweight. They're lined with paper and they're written, you know, it's the same illustrator that they've had doing my name since I started, unless they, one of somebody else can copy their writing. But since nine, 2009, I've been attending their shows. And that's always the block, it's yeah. always the same. Ah, well, la I think this last season but one, suddenly there was a new formation and I was devastated. <laughs> but then uh, this uh, autumn winter, 2019 collection I was very relieved to find that there was a uh, again a Mew Mew block there so they're just good on top of piles of paper of which <laughs> my husband would tell you I'm very good at I'm not very good at tidying I can clean but I think I'm just don't have um, the spatial awareness to work out where it's going to so generally Barry will have to come in and help me put things into drawers and work out what would go in what box I can clean and you know make the house spotless but I if you leave me in the office, my home office, with all my things to file, two hours later you'll still find them, but they've just been rearranged in lots of other piles. I, I actually can't work out how to put something away, as <laughs> ridiculous as that sounds. So um, these are really good. They just kind of weight things down and then Barry will process Barry's them the one with the spatial Oh my God, awareness yes. That man is like search and destroy. He can come in in 20 minutes and suddenly the whole place. It's like, the, what was that game... Um, called uh, where you had to put uh, circular things in square boxes etc I think it must be like a Mensa activity I think it's whether your brain has that spatial awareness you know as a curator 
I don't think I was the best exhibition designer, I'm really good researcher and I can create a hierarchy of information, which I suppose is my skill in the magazine. But I think in terms of organising space, I really enjoy working with a designer. Um, the Bite Away has been a boon for international travel. Um, it does look like a sex toy, I know, <laughs> yes. but it is actually a tiny little kind of toothbrush-like implement that has a hot plate of about one centimetre diameter at the top. And if you get bitten as quick as you can... By a mosquito. Yes, uh, or anything else. Um, as quick as you can, if you lay the hot plate on top of the bite and you press the button, it has a, a source of heat that lasts about six seconds. It's actually quite painful, but it will stop the bite from spreading because I'm really badly allergic to mosquito bites and I have to get them cut out, get big you know, scars all over my body from because they turn into these little hard lumps. Um, so, uh, the glamour, the that... glamour, um, but this and is it great. Works, so you have to use it as soon as you've been bitten, you can't... Well, within a day, it will, okay. you know, it will stop whatever is already happening um, from getting any worse. And for going to the collections, the spring-summer collections in um, September in Milan, there's loads of uh, canals in Milan, as you know, and you end up getting horrendously bitten. So that's a really big thing for me. I, I always go to the Venice Film Festival with Miu Miu for their um, Women's Tales uh, films um, uh, release and do the interviews with them. And, you know, several times I've come off a, a island holiday and I can't wear bare legs in Venice at that time of year because I'm just completely bitten. And they can turn to, you know, the size of an orange, my mosquito bites. So this truly is this a wonder object. Away. I love it. I can't stop when telling everybody about this? it. Was there a Maybe about four years ago, um, Veronica Ditting, our creative director, uh, she was travelling in Patagonia, I think, and her brother's girlfriend had one. Wow. I was blown Life away. Life changer, yeah. Yeah. And what about this uh, practical looking object here? Betty came into my life in 2010. <laughs> we got a rescue cat um, who actually was meant to be my cat, but it turns out she loves my husband and hates me. She is like the opposite. <laughs> is that why of... she's hiding on the yeah, back? She well, means... she's semi-feral. I think she, her previous owners had kept her in a shed and she's very frightened of feet. So I think she'd been kicked a lot. Um, so she, I mean, reason, quite reasonably, she's very suspicious of people. However, no, I think she's just one of those cats that loves men. She hangs around his leg like a leopard in a tree and she'll sit, you know, if I get up in the night and return to my spot in the bed, she'll be there like the Sphinx and she'll turn her back on me. She just loves him. Gosh, even she's... cats are, are susceptible to the power of Barry's appeal. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah, it's like that bit in um, Return of the Jedi where the, the Ewoks think that C-3PO is a god. She just follows him <laughs> around the whole time. But the important thing to say about Betty is I should have known before I got a white cat that a woman that wears mainly dark colours is just going to end up continually covered in cat hair. And even if I think I denude myself of white cat hair, it travels with me. I was in Rome with Dior last week and, um, you know, I pick up the dress that they've very kindly given me and it's covered, you know, somehow she's crept into the suitcase. It just, you know, it goes up into garment bags. It's in my handbag, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, so rather than be exposed as um, a desperate, uh, you know, cat loving kind of um, saddle, I, I have several versions of the lint roller that Mew Mew uh, makes. There are three sizes. Most stylists I know have this one that's almost like a kind of paint roller inside a holster, which um, any set 
photo set you'll go on to, they have it. But there's also a kind of uh, mid-size one for your suitcase and then there's a little mini one for your handbag. Um, and I go through sheets and sheets of this. It's not very sustainable because every time you roller, you have to pull off one of the, the strips. But truly is the only way that I know to get rid of Betty from my clothing. And honestly, when you leave this house, I'll probably need to do it to you too, because who knows, she'll have sat on this seat that you're on. She's everywhere, this woman. <laughs> That's brilliant. All right, well, I think we've talked about everything we were going to talk about. Yeah. Have we? I thought um, maybe you said that you had 10 objects. I'm not sure we've discussed 10, but I feel like... Important to the diary is the pen. Um, the Pilot G-Tech C4 is my pen of choice. Not It makes my handwriting look a lot more uh, acceptable, which is an important thing in diary writing and postcard writing. Nobody wants to write if they think they're Does the colour matter of the ink? Well, I would have only written in navy blue and black. I used to write in kind of royal blue for exams. Don't know why that was. Um, although people hated sitting next to me in exams because actually my pressure is quite... Uh, heavy and you could just hear a kind of thunder with me writing across the the desk I'll curl paper it'll just turn into little kind of toilet rolls of paper because I can write so hard obviously furious um, and I would have said it would only be back or, or blue like clothing but recently well I wouldn't say I stole her pen but after I had a meeting with your colleague Jess I noticed that the pilot comes in this kind of blood brown colour it's like a congealed wound mm. And it's the sort of interim colour between red pen, which of course I use a lot for line editing, you know, um, but this one is kind of a bit more of a formal red. Um, and I've been using that for uh, diary and postcards. I don't know, it's actually very beautiful, but there's just something strange about it that I'm quite enjoying. I've got green pen too for when on an edit, you have to recognise the third round of changes. So I've got several different colours that get layered up on a line edit of a, you know, a piece of script if I'm a line editing copy. But um, yeah, at the moment it is the Pilot GTEC C4 and it's earned me compliments. Jack Webb, who does a lot of our still life photography in uh, The Gentlewoman, wrote from New York to find out where what pen I'm using. So it has results. Amazing. Could you ever, one last question, um, can you ever imagine writing a diary that you'd type? No. Um, I know people do, don't they? Um, but the, well, many people have written about this, but it's about time delay, isn't it? I type too fast for me to process information enough to access the internal dialogue, I think. Mm. Um, and if I'm having problem problem writing copy for my work, I'll certainly switch to uh, longhand in order to spend a bit more time enjoying myself with the way I'm writing and it injects kind of pleasure and um, uh, sort of luxury into the process that just stops me feeling anxious about the detail of it and kind of sitting correcting my grammar as I go. It's a, just a very different process and it gets very different results it's the same difference between typing you know an email and writing a diary you just the connection with the pen um is all important which is why i'm really fastidious about um pens i can't stand um ballpoint pens it's just something it's a bit like drinking a cup of tea with a 
a cup that's got a rim that's too fat in your mouth. There's just something, uh, don't feel connected enough. I need the very, very fine line in order to feel sort of staccato and I suppose witty. Um, and the ballpoint makes me feel like I'm kind of almost filling in a form with a kind of in a, in a fist or something like that. It's wrong. That's a really good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> On the, <laughs> the different <laughs> wrong and right pens. Um, Penny Martin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. (laughs) That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.